0: Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our gratitude to you for all that we have, all that we are, because it all comes from you. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation. We thank you that you continue to uh, protect this nation, guide and direct us along the way in the leadership of this nation, and we pray that you would continue to enable this nation to be a, a real bulwark for freedom and for truth and an opportunity to proclaim your word. Father, we pray that in spite of the fact that we look around the international scene and we see various things going on that threaten the stability of the world, we know that There is no real stability unless it's in terms of a relationship with you, for there is peace in no other than in a relationship with you. Father, we pray as we study your word this evening, you challenge us with what we're studying and that we might come to understand some things in ways we haven't understood them before, that God the Holy Spirit would use this to make it clear to our thinking that we may, uh, he may use it in our sanctification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, and we're working our way into some more basic concepts as we get down through this third verse. There's several key phrases and key terms that we find in the third verse that are fundamental to understanding things that develop within the uh, outworking of this this, uh, unique uh, unique book. So I pointed out in previous studies, this is written to Theophilus. Some people believe that Theophilus is just sort of a name for a group of people, those who love God, which is the meaning of the word. But most scholars have believed that this is written to an individual by that name who was uh, acted as a patron, perhaps for uh, for Luke. This is to the person to whom he wrote his gospel, and so he refers to the first account, that is the gospel of Luke, uh, that in that book he began to cover all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach in terms of his ministry during the incarnation. Up until the day that he was taken up to heaven, he concludes the gospel with an account of the ascension, which he covers again as he begins uh, the book of Acts till the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by means of the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The last two lessons focused on identifying uh, those apostles, understanding the distinction. Remember three ways in which the word apostle is used in the Scripture. People need to understand these distinctions. Don't just think that every time you see apostle, it refers to the same thing. First of all, you have the twelve that are chosen, chosen by Jesus, sent by Jesus, but they're sent to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not to the Gentiles. It's not the church-age spiritual gift. It is a mission that was restricted to the time period of the the ministry of the Lord while he was on the earth. Then we will see starting in Acts chapter 2 with the beginning of the church and based on doctrine that's revealed in the uh, in the epistles, that there is a spiritual gift and office of apostle, and uh, that applies to someone who has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ again, but their mission shifts. The mission is now to the world, and they are gifted by God the Holy Spirit in terms of a spiritual gift and in terms of a leadership position. And that is limited, we know, by uh, what is revealed in Revelation chapter 21 to refer to the 12 apostles. The 12 meaning the 11 whom Jesus chose, and I believe the 12th is the Apostle Paul. Then we have the term apostle used of those who are commissioned by a local church and sent out as as missionaries, and so that's a lowercase a, and it's really not a good idea to refer to anybody today in that sense by that term because it just gets uh, very confusing, so we covered the doctrine of the apostle chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we're told, and Acts remember Acts one one through three is just a sum, summation. He says to these, that is to these apostles, he also presented himself alive. After his suffering, that is, after the the time on the cross, when he died, when he paid the penalty for the sins of the world, he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, it's very important to understand this word that's translated convincing proofs. This is something that's very uh, very important to understand because we live in an era today when as a result of the influence of uh, German philosophy, specifically that of Immanuel Kant at the end of the uh, 18th century, to think of religion and all religious belief as merely something that is internal, something subjective, something that you feel, something that is deeply personal, something that isn't necessarily uh, external, objectifiable, or something that is subject to rational investigation. Uh, it's distinguished from that. And so today when we talk to people about proving what you believe, that just that's like somebody rubbing uh, their fingernails on a chalkboard. It doesn't make sense in terms of the way they have been trained to think about religion. Because for them, religion is something that is just their personal subjective belief. Of course, the worst case scenario of that or the, uh, that we find today is the people who have just a religious smorgasbord and they take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and throw in a little bit of something else and mix it all together and come up with their own little pagan brew. And that, ha- that, of course, again, it's irrational because uh, the little bit of this and a little bit of that doesn 't necessarily have to have to uh, be logically consistent doesn 't really have to fit and it 's really insulting to these various uh, religious beliefs because many religious beliefs have been hammered out over the years in terms of some sort of logical coherence, and so people come along and they Believe there's, you know, a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of, uh, uh, Roman Catholic mysticism and and I'm blended all together and they're just happy. The question is, how do you know it's right? How do you know it's true? Because as soon as you come along, just listen to me here. As soon as you come along and you, and you say, make some claim related to Christianity, that Jesus is the only Savior, they're going to look at you and say, You're wrong. Ah, you say I'm wrong? What's your what's your criterion for determining what is right and what is wrong? Where do you get that that uh, value system? Where do you get that standard for evaluating and determining what is right or wrong? Uh, how did you use that in your own religious belief? How do you determine what is right or wrong in terms of what you believe? And just uh, ask those questions. Uh, it's not just a matter of choosing something that makes you feel good and feel comfortable, but something that actually is true. And then, of course, you get into this whole issue, of, is there truth? But you can't even ask the question semantically without presupposing that there's something that is true. For example, the meaning of the words. Is this true? For that sentence to even make sense, you have to presuppose that each word that's used has a set meaning that doesn't flux, that doesn't change, and that the person you're talking to can actually understand from your sentence well, you intend to communicate, and so people want to walk around and say, "Well, there's no such thing as absolute truth. What's true for you is wonderful. What's true for me is something else, and we can uh, uh, we can just uh, believe our different truths." But if one person believes that, uh, for example, that uh, that Islam is the only way, and somebody else believes that Jesus is the only way then you're going to have a a conflict. These are exclusive uh, claims that uh, you can't compromise. So you have to be able to have some sort of value system, some sort of external criterion that you can bring to these great questions. And, of course, down through the ages, philosophers and theologians have done that. And what we see happening here in the Bible is the Bible assumes that truth can be validated, truth can be confirmed. I'm not saying that truth, truth, the ultimate truth, can be proven. There's a difference between confirmation and proof. Confirmation demonstrates the consistency and the validity of something, and that's a little bit different from something that would be uh, construed as an absolute proof. Uh, so that proof, if we were to say, can you prove God exists? You can't prove God exists from an external authority because God, by definition, is the highest authority. So, to what would you appeal that would be a higher authority than God? See, proof in one sense would demand that you have a higher authority to appeal to than God, but if God is the highest authority, then there is no, uh, higher authority. So, you can look at the Bible and say that the Bible is consistent. The Bible reflects uh, the presuppositions or assumptions that it presents. The Bible is, has evidence that it is true that you can look at. But in proof in terms of that sort of uh, demand from a rationalistic, empirical, scientific framework uh, is is limited because the scientific worldview is inherently limited it, it operates on the sense of a closed universe, uh, at least empirically, or excuse me at least epistemologically a closed universe, and yet to define truth, you have to be able to go beyond uh, that closed that closed uh, uh, epistemological universe. So Luke uses this word, uh, take Marion which means to present something in a convincing or decisive manner, to give evidential proof that is self-sufficient. Now, when I talk about evidences, evidences provide a certain measure of confirmation. But an evidence is always open to interpretation. And someone may come and say, well, you just say that's what it means, but I don't have to believe it. Just because uh, somebody's DNA completely matches uh, the DNA found found at a crime scene doesn't mean we have to uh, vote that that person is guilty. That happens, doesn't it? Uh, So people can operate on an irrational Framework and just reject whatever is presented because they don't like where it goes. They don't like, uh, like where those conclusions go. So, what the Apostle, I mean, what, what Luke is saying here is that Jesus presents empirical verification to his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And there, it is convincing, it is overwhelming evidence that he was dead, and now he is alive. And it fits the rules of evidence. For Remember, Jesus is talking to or is appearing to uh, his Jewish disciples, Jewish disciples who have been trained in the Torah, trained in the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, nothing can be accepted unless it's confirmed by two or more witnesses. And so Jesus is, not, is going to go far beyond that. He's going to confirm it not by simply uh, by the simple eyewitness testimony of two witnesses. There are going to be over 500 witnesses who can claim that they have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, that he rose from the dead physically, bodily from the dead. And this had a, an unbelievable impact on on the life of those who lived in Jerusalem and Judea at this particular time. But before we get into that, I want to use this to introduce a a, a topic, a branch of theology that is uh, going to be developed more and more as we go through uh, our study of the book of Acts, and that is the study of apologetics. Now, a lot of people don't really understand what apologetics is all about. Apologetics, it has nothing to do with making an apology. I'm still amazed how many times I've said that and somebody still may come along and say, well, it just sounds like we're trying to make an apology. Well, that's just uh, absurd. Apologetics is a recognized branch of theology that has to do with the rational evidences or uh, proof of Christianity. Simply put, Point number one, apologetics is simply explaining why we believe what we believe. If you say that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament, I can ask you, well, why do you believe that? And you should be able to give me two or three reasons why you believe that. And not just go, "Uh, hmm, my pastor says so. Doesn't work. Or uh, you say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Well, ha- what evidence do you have of that? How do you know he rose from the dead? You weren't there. Uh, how do you see that? You know, don't, you, don't, don't you, you just trust anything that somebody says? What about all these other claims and all these other religious books of, of some sort of miraculous claim? And, and you don't believe those. Why do you believe this? So how do we answer these particular questions? Now, just in terms of addressing this, some people may say, well, well, this has to do with faith. And faith is not rational. See, as soon as you hear somebody say faith is not rational, uh, they've already revealed what they're talking about. They have excluded faith as having anything to do with knowledge. Now, biblically speaking, faith is another basis knowledge because faith isn't something mystical faith is something where you're trusting in the authority of someone else to tell you something that you haven't personally witnessed or seen yourself Uh, and there are many ways in which we all live our lives there's nobody I don't care uh, how scientific they are There is no one who can operate on the basis of only believing what they have personally seen, measured, or experienced. We believe in hundreds of thousands of things every single day, things we read in the newspaper, things we watch on TV, and we believe them to be true because people we think we trust witnessed or observed uh, those particular events. And so we constantly believe in eyewitness testimony of someone else, and because someone else saw it, or there is a multiplicity of witnesses to that, then we believe it. We haven't experienced it ourselves. We haven't ever uh, gone out and tried to re- tried to duplicate those circumstances. We just believe it because we trust the authority that uh, that. Informed us. And that's what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is trusting in someone else who has informed us of information we can't quantify, measure, evaluate on our own. And the person who has revealed that to us is God. And because it is God, What he says comes with a measure, it's not a circular argument, comes with a measure of self-authenticating power to it. But it also has evidence God never does anything in private that he didn't validate in public. You can go through the scriptures again and again and again, and never once do you find God informing someone of something in private that he didn't confirm and validate with external evidence to support what they said. So when you run into people who operate on mysticism and say, well, God told me to do X, Y, and Z, uh, how do you know God really told you? That? How do you know you just didn't have a bad night's sleep? How did it come? You didn't know that you didn't have a double jalapeno triple anchovy pizza last night, and it just gave you little bad dreams, and you thought God told you something. You, you don't know. Uh, if they can't give you that rational evidence to confirm it, then it's it's not biblical. The Bible is always based. God never expects us to put our brains in neutral to park our brain somewhere and just believe so that we can have an uh, an experience with God. That is not biblical uh, Christianity. Faith in Christianity, therefore, is not the opposite of thought, but it is a very foundation for thought because we believe that God has informed us through his revelation of key pieces of information that are fundamental then to truly understanding and interpreting um, the events around us. Faith, therefore, in biblical faith is not mystical. It's not subjective. Uh, it, the basic claims of Christianity, the basic claims of the Old Testament, are all open to validation and verification. How many times have we gone through passages in the Old Testament? You can think about Joshua when the Israelites crossed over the Jordan. What was the first thing they were told to do? Put up a pile of stones, 12 big stones that will sit there uh, for the next gener- several generations so that when you come back and you're with your children and your grandchildren and uh, they, they uh, ask you, uh, what are those rocks for? You can say that is to commemorate the fact that at one point God separated the waters of the Jordan and the uh, Israelites crossed over on dry ground into the land that God had promised them. And so there are these benchmarks to validate that these things happened in in history and they weren't just legends that were made up. And again and again, when you read uh, through the Old Testament, you'll have comments that and those are there to this very day and the writer writing at his time is reminding the people that they can they themselves can go down there and see that pile of uh, rocks down by the Jordan River or they can go over to this other location and see that or uh, if they're writing in the time of a person who's still alive they can go talk to that person and get their uh their uh, uh first person uh evidence for the person though that who is bought into the thinking of modern philosophy faith is in itself non-rational because at the they approach the data with the assumption that you can't know truth now they may not have ever thought about it that way but that's really what has been front-loaded into their thought system from the education that they've received and the background that they've received via uh, modern philosophy, Kantian philosophy or Kierkegaardian philosophy on up into the modern sense. So they have a view of knowledge that is truncated. Knowledge is restricted to only that which you can know through empiricism, through what you see, what you taste, what you touch. It's only through that direct observation that you can have any true knowledge. really. Can you prove that? No, you can't. Empiricism always falls apart eventually. It always has historically It because it there are things that go beyond our experience. As I pointed out earlier, no one can operate or live their life on the basis that the only thing that they're going to believe to be true is what they have uh, directly measured, seen, observed. They have to operate on uh, trust at some point. And it is faith in human ability, faith in God's revelation that undergirds undergirds everything. Now, the second thing about apologetics, the first thing was that it's simply explaining why you believe what you believe. It's giving a cogent, rational, uh, informed answer for why you believe what you believe. The key second point is that the key verse for apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, But sanctify, or set apart, Christ as Lord in your hearts, that is in your thinking. The heart always refers to the core of a person's being, their, their, the heart of their being, their soul. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, in your thinking, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Notice those words like always being ready, and everyone. See, that that's pretty inclusive, pretty broad, not just on Sunday, but always. Uh, not just those in your family, but anyone. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, not out of pride, not out of hostility, not because you feel threatened. Sometimes that concept of making a defense makes some people think you're being defensive. No. The word apologia that is translated make a defense is a courtroom term that describes a legal argument in defense of a client or in defense of a position. So you set forth your view. This is why this is true. Point one, point two, point three. Maybe you set up a logical syllogism. Maybe you use sentential logic. But you utilize um, these other tools in order to demonstrate the validity of what you are saying. And so the issue for you is how, if somebody were to ask you uh, why you believe Jesus rose from the dead, how would you answer that? And you can't just say because the Bible says so. Okay, well, why do you trust the Bible? It's interesting, um, this last week I was talking to uh, a friend of mine, some, some of you know him, uh, Randy Price. And uh, Randy and I uh, ran into each other at the um, Evangelical Theological Society meeting last week. He gave a presentation on his most recent uh, adventures on Mount Ararat, trying to find uh, evidence of Noah's Ark. And he was t- talking about how so many times when p- people talk about different subjects that you never know how God is going to use the- something to bring the truth of the gospel home to people and one time he was giving a presentation on um, on uh, at a at a uh, in a in a rather uh, at, at a Bible college, or at a college, rather, that was that really didn't want him to talk very much about religion. So he was just talking about archaeology and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he wasn't t- supposed to get into any, you know, personal belief or anything of that nature. He received a call a few weeks later, and a guy said, I just want to let you know that um, I trusted Christ as my Savior as a result of your talk last week. And Randy said, what do you mean? I never even mentioned Jesus. I never even talked about the cross or salvation. How did you, how did you, they said, well, I've heard the gospel for years and I, but I wasn't sure, you know, the only, the basic source of information about the gospel is the Bible. And I wasn't sure you could trust the Bible. And when you went through all of that information about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they confirmed the the, uh, validity of the Old Testament and the transmission of the text, I knew I could trust the Bible. Therefore, I decided to trust in Jesus. So you never know how these things fit together, and giving a rational defense of the gospel is part of uh, part of evangelism. The Apostle Paul saw this as, as clearly a part of his of his particular uh, ministry. In Philippians 1, 7 he said, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, he wrote this when he was, uh, in Rome, both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That was part of his job as an apostle, was to defend or to make a case for the truth of the gospel. And uh, later on in the same chapter, verse 17, he says, uh, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Well, great, that was the apostle's job. Their job is to defend the gospel, not me. So what about me? Well, in Jude uh, 3... Verse 3, Jude writes, uh, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Contending for the faith means to fight for the faith, to fight for what is right and what is true and not just let error slip in. And so this involves the same, it's a different word, it's not the same word apologia, uh, it's a different word, but it has that idea of wrestling for the truth, of contending for the, for the, uh, for the faith. So we are to be involved in that. Titus 1-9 uh, focuses on pastors, on leaders, that they are to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So this is what uh, is the role of a pastor or anybody who is any kind of a teaching uh, ministry. The third thing I want to say about apologetics tonight is that apologetics involves a couple of different aspects. Now, there are different approaches to apologetics. I'm not going to get into that until later on in our study in Acts. You have what's called presuppositional apologetics. You have uh, evidentialist apologetics. You have different approaches, uh, which come out of different theological systems. But uh, what I just want to focus on here is Christian evidences. And uh, so we have uh, different types of Christian evidences. The first is... Evidence on the reliability of the Bible. There's all kinds of evidence on the reliability of the Bible. Archaeology has never, ever disproven anything in relationship to the Bible. They may claim, well, we've never found anything to confirm it, but that doesn't mean that you've contradicted it. You just haven't found it yet. Uh, right now, I understand that in the uh, ne- in this December issue of of uh, National Geographic right now there is a, the cover story article has to do with uh, archaeological disputes going on in Jerusalem, whether or not they have found hard evidence that the, 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 the uh, house of David exists, that there really was a person named David, and that there really was a uh, a palace that, that the glories of the Davidic Solomonic kingdom were as great as fabulous. Uh, and wealthy, as depicted in the Bible. And there are others who are minimalists, and they think, well, you know, that was all way overblown, and all you really had was just a bunch of people in a sleepy little village. And basically what they're saying is the Bible lies. But they, they try to, they have this subterfuge to cover that up by saying, well, this is just that kind of a legendary stuff. No, uh, it's not. You can't prove that by looking at other types of writings either. It's just... It's just a way to, once again, uh, just impugn uh, the Bible. And uh, yet, and there was a, one particular uh, archaeologist who had come up with his his theory some 15 or 20 years ago, and uh, and yet some recent discoveries down near, a lot down near the uh, Gulf of Aqaba have uh, indicated perhaps some, uh, Some things they found there, some uh, operations where they were smelting ore that indicate huge technological operations that would confirm the advanced civilization that was in operation at the time of David and Solomon. Now, it doesn't say Solomon built this, it doesn't say David slept here, uh, but it does confirm, give evidence that at that time in history, because they can date that back to the, uh, uh that, that period of time, approximately a thousand BC, and they see that what they find fits the descriptive narrative that's there in, in, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And in kings, so it fits that scenario. So that helps to support what the scripture says. In some places, uh, archaeology has discovered the existence of the Hittites. There were uh, that was one of the great attacks on Christianity and the Bi- truthfulness of the Bible in the 19th century and early 20th century. That oh the Bible talks about these people named Hitt- the Hittites. We've never discovered the existence of anybody like that. What arrogance! they had discovered maybe one-tenth of what they've discovered by now, and maybe by now we've discovered one-tenth of what they'll have discovered a hundred years from now. And they thought that they had discovered it all, and they never found any mention of the Hittites, and then they discovered in uh, Bugaskoi, uh, Turkey, they discovered the capital of the Hittite Empire, and there were a lot of people, a lot of, quote, scholars who were hanging their head in shame. You have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were written between about 200, 250 B.C., and about 100 to 150 AD and then they're they're hidden away in these jars and hidden away in the caves down in Qumran which is just right along the dead sea very dry environment and so these uh, parchments were preserved down through the centuries and then uh that when they were discovered in 1948 they were they've been compared to what we had for for a Hebrew bible uh, that uh, uh, modern times was based on the oldest text went back to about the uh, mid 9th century, 10th century AD, and yet the, there were hardly any differences between you know, a thousand years between these two manuscripts and very, very few differences. The differences they found were matters of spelling, uh, maybe word order had two, two or three words had shifted their order, things of that nature. But nothing, nothing substantive, nothing dramatic. Uh, in fact, uh, Miller Burrows, who was the head of the Semitics department at Yale, uh, wrote up was on the original team that was translating the Dead Sea Scrolls in the early 50s, and as and he was also on the translation team, the head of the Old Testament translation team for the uh, Revised Standard Version, and on the basis of only uh, of some things that he saw in the Dead Sea Scroll, the big Isaiah Scroll. Uh, He's, he believed that there were, there were only about ten significant differences between the Isaiah scroll and, and the Masoretic text of the, of the Hebrew Bible. And so he looked at them and he accepted five of them as the, he thought the Qumran was superior. But after ten more years of studying, he came out in the mid-60s and said, I was wrong. He said, what we have in the Masoretic text is superior to what was found at, at Qumran. And so there are very few differences. And so you have the discovery of things like the Dead Sea Scroll confirms the veracity of the Hebrew text and how well it was preserved. Then you have thousands of New Testament manuscripts, thousands. You have parchment, you have, uh, you have just portions of text, you have whole uh, codexes, you have verses that are quoted in sermons and second century, third century uh, writings, and you can compare all this and realize that nothing's changed, that in fact, uh, In contrast to the claims of the liberals in the late 19th and early 20th century, all of the Bible, all the New Testament, actually had to have been written in the first century and not later. It wasn't legendary uh, material written down. It wasn't the result of oral history that had been passed down through several generations. But it had to have been written by... Uh, men who were eyewitnesses of the very events that they described. Now, that's huge, because if they're eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and they're writing to people who lived in the town, Jerusalem, where the resurrection occurred, it'd be real easy to disprove them to be false. Rather than disproving them, what happens is you have this explosive uh, new religion, Christianity, that can only be explained if the resurrection is true. But we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. You also have miracles, arguments for uh, miracles, uh, apologetics showing the reality of miracles. You have fulfilled prophecy. A lot of the Bible, approximately 25%, is unfulfilled. But 75% of the prophecies that you have in the Old Testament have been literally fulfilled exactly as, as history written ahead of time. Of course, the way to try to disprove that is to say, well, they didn't really write that in the 8th century B.C. or 7th century. That was written much later. It was really written after the fact. Well, now as we're discovering various things, we realize, no, it couldn't have been written after the fact. Daniel is a classic example. There are many scholars who always claim Daniel was not written until uh, 300 uh, B.C. And, and all of that prophecy that you have in Daniel predicting the rise of the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, that's actually just written uh, very late. But once you discover a very old copy of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you realize it's impossible that it could have found its way there by that time unless it had been written much earlier than the time that the, that the liberals claimed. So fulfilled prophecy also confirms and validates the text. You have evidences for Jesus' deity, the things that he did, uh, walking on the water, the healings, uh, giving sight to those who were born blind, raising uh, people from the dead. And if you are familiar with religious texts, and you read the accounts of the Gospels and then go read some of the apocryphal Gospels that are written in the late second or third century, they get fantastic. It's like science fiction. They get very imaginative, and it gets really strange. There's You can't read, one, the the account of the biblical Gospels and read these other Gospels without observing that they they really are very, very different. And then try to compare that with something like... A, like what you find in uh, other uh, religious systems, uh, in Buddhism or in, um, in in the Quran, or even in in Mormonism, and you try to you compare their miracles, and they're just they're, the quality is very very different. And so you have these evidences for Jesus' deity, and then evidences uh, for the resurrection, and that's what I want to focus on this morning, because what are this evening, because that's what Jesus is doing in Acts one three is he's giving evidence that he actually rose from the dead, that, that he died, he was physically dead, and that three days later he rose from the dead. He had a new body, not an invisible body. He's not a figment of their imagination. They're not having a mass hallucination. Uh, he has a physical body that can. he could eat, he could drink, You could feel the wounds in his hands. You could feel the wounds in his side. And, and the disciples did that. And they, and, and they were not expecting him to rise from the dead. They were, they were in fear of their lives. And they were moving down the road with their lives. Jesus is dead. I guess we just made a big mistake with him. Now we have to figure out what we're going to do now. And then they began to hear, well, well, did you hear that? That Jesus—they're saying Jesus rose from the dead, and that he's appeared to some of the disciples. And others would say, "No, that's not. How could that happen? That's not true. We don't believe that." They were just like you and me. They're not going to go around and think that somebody did that. They weren't predisposed for that. Don't belittle that generation by saying, "Oh, they were just prone to that." You can't read the literature written by the Romans and the Greeks and the. And the Jews of that time, like Josephus, and think that they were just prone to just believe these, these kind of, uh, miracle stories and supernatural things as if they were mental midgets. They weren't. They were highly educated and trained people at that time, and they were just as skeptical of somebody uh, claiming to uh, have been raised from the dead as you or I would be. And yet they were completely convinced so much by the evidence that it just absolutely changed their lives. Now, this first and second appearance, as I'm going to go through, I want, I'm going to go through a number of things that happened on the day of the resurrection, on that first resurrection Sunday morning, just so we can uh, get the con- context. First thing that happens before dawn, there's this massive earthquake that is so great that it causes the stone that, that uh, one source says that, uh, that it probably weighed so much that it would take up to 20 men to move it. This earthquake is so powerful, it moves the stone out of place, and, um, which makes sense within the text because when the when the women uh, Mary Magdalene the other Mary Salome and Joanna there four when they're going that morning to finish the preparation of the body Mark tells us he's the only one who points this out they're they're asking each other how are we going to get in how are we going to move the stone this really they didn't know how they were going to do it but they knew that they hadn't had time to finish the uh Preparation of the body after they took it down on the cross because the uh, sundown, the Sabbath would begin, and so the uh, high holy day, actually, and so uh, the, the, the Passover, and so they had, to, uh, uh, they had to go back to finish that. So they're concerned about that. So the stone weighed quite a bit. Um, after, at that time, an angel appeared. Just all of a sudden, there's an angel sitting on top of the stone, If he had a sense of humor, he was probably throwing rocks at the uh, Roman guard that was standing there completely dumbfounded, but uh, probably didn't have that kind of sense of humor. Um, So you had the, uh, the, the Roman guard, probably four that were awake, another eight were probably there, so they operated on shifts, and the whole guard is wide awake from the earthquake, and they're dumbfounded as dead men. They can't move. They've never seen anything like this. This angel appears, a bright white light, and they're just scared, motionless. And this angel appears, the guards are struck like dead men, and then the angel addresses the women. That must have really confused the guard, because in that day, women weren't well respected, and here's this angel ignoring them and addressing the women, and tells them not to be afraid, because Jesus had risen uh, from the dead. And it's at that point that Mary Magdalene runs in and she looks and sees that the body's gone. And then she turns around and takes off, leaving the other three there. And she goes to tell Peter and John. And then the angel, along with uh, another angel, we now know that there were two there, invite them, the other three women that are left to come in and see the place where Jesus' body had been. And then that angel uh, ordered them to go tell the disciples. Now, Mary Magdalene's already taken off. She's going to tell Peter and John, and they're going to turn around, and they're going to run as fast as they can to get back to the tomb. While they're running back, this angel has told the other three women to go tell the rest of the disciples so they leave. So they're gone by the time Peter and John get back, and... um, and they come and discover the, that the tomb is empty. And then, while these other, the other women, the other three, are leaving, Jesus appeared to them. And this is described in Matthew 28, 9 through 10. So that's the first appearance to those other three women. And uh, he told them to go tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Then... Um, and. and Peter and John run to the tomb. They discover that it's empty, and then they go home. They're trying to make sense of this, of where the body is gone. And then after they've left, then Mary Magdalene finally catch, catches up. She couldn't run back as fast as they could. Uh, and she makes it back and saw someone near the tomb, doesn't recognize thinks it's the gardener. And then the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself to her, and she sees that it is that it's the Lord. So these are the first two appearances. The first is to the other three women, and the four, and the second is to uh, Mary Magdalene. Now the other women in Mary Magdalene make it back to the other disciples, and they don't believe them. See, they're not predisposed to believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus told them he was going to be crucified, and they didn't believe that. And it took them by surprise when he was arrested, he's crucified. They Then Jesus told them that he would ra- be raised from the dead, and they didn't believe that. And they're scared to death in the, after the crucifixion because they think that the Romans will come after them because they were followers of Jesus. So they turned into cowards. They're hiding there, they don't want to uh, uh, create any kind of uh, disruption. They don't want to bring any attention upon themselves. They just want to get on with their life because they made a big mistake thinking that this Jesus was somebody special and that he was the Messiah. There were a lot of people at this time that claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus did things nobody else did. He raised, uh, raised people from the dead, which the rabbis had taught would only be done by the Messiah. He gave sight to the blind, which the rabbis taught would only be done by the Messiah. And yet, he got crucified and he died. I guess we made a mistake. So they're in hiding. So they don't believe what uh, what the women tell them. At the same time that day, the guards leave. There's no reason to guard an empty tomb. We can't prevent the body from getting away. From their report indicates that they saw Jesus leave. Uh, so they go back to report to the Sanhedrin and um, and their commanders uh, what had happened, and the Sanhedrin were told, bribed the guards to say that the disciples stole the body. Sure, pay them enough money. Uh, they'll they'll say anything. And the Sanhedrin then began to send messages out to try to get ahead of the um, of the story. With their interpretation, not any different today. You know, people always trying to get ahead of the of the bad news and uh, and and put their own spin on it. Now, later on that afternoon, Jesus appears to two disciples. This is not of the of the twelve. One of them we know is named Cleopas. Uh, two disciples are on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a village about twelve miles away from Jerusalem, and there he 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 cloaks his identity so they don't recognize him. And he starts asking them questions about what they've been doing, what's been going on in Jerusalem. They tell him about, uh, Jesus being crucified. And th- then, the, and, and they're just disappointed. They've heard that he rose from the dead. He d- they don't believe that. And then he begins to say, well, you, you foolish men, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at the Hebrew Bible. Let's look at the Old Testament. And from, he goes from Genesis to Second Chronicles. That's the order of the Hebrew Bible. And he goes through and he shows again and again and again all the prophecies, all the promises about the Messiah and how all of that pointed to uh, Jesus and how he fulfilled every single one of those promises and prophecies, the, and, and the, at least the ones that applied to the first advent. And then they realize who it is that's talking to them and they uh, believe that he's been raised from the dead. Now they come back. After dinner that night, he eats dinner with them, and then he goes on, and then they decide they've got to run back to Jerusalem and tell everybody in Jerusalem what they saw. Uh, they just couldn't keep it quiet, and they run back, and somewhere along the way they hear that Jesus had also appeared to Peter. Now, we're not told about when Jesus appeared to Peter, but we know from 1 Corinthians 15.5 and from Luke 24.34 That Jesus appeared to Peter alone somewhere at some point because all of a sudden people are talking about he appeared to Peter and then he appeared to the rest of them. So these are the third and the fourth appearance, the one to the two on the road to Emmaus and the fourth is the one to, uh, Peter. The fifth appearance is that after that, when they're there telling the eleven, disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus had appeared to them, then Jesus appears to them. Thomas isn't with them. This is given in John twenty nineteen 19 through 25, and Jesus instructs them and uh, now they believe in the resurrection. It's not a mass hallucination. It's not like some of those movies you see about the resurrection where they just hear this sort of disembodied voice. No, there is a physical bodily presence uh, with them. The sixth appearance occurs eight days later, when he appears to the twelve, and Thomas is present. And this time, Thomas has been saying, "No, I don't believe this. Uh, he was dead. I saw him dead. I know he was dead. I can't believe he's alive again. Uh, I am Mr. Empirical. You have to. He's going to have to prove it to me." And so Jesus shows up and say, "Okay, Thomas, stick your hand in the side here where the." Uh, uh, Roman spear entered my side. Put your hand, feel the nail prints in my in my hands and in my feet, and uh, immediately Thomas falls down uh, uh, before him and worship him, saying, "My Lord, my God," because he he saw and he had that empirical evidence. But what did Jesus say? He said, "This is great that you believe because you saw firsthand experience and you saw this." But blessed are those who are willing to trust the eyewitness accounts, and without seeing me directly will still believe uh, that I rose from the dead. On the seventh appearance, he's up in Galilee, as he told the disciples to head north to Galilee, and he appears to them on the shore of Galilee at Tiberias. Peter, Thomas uh, the twin, Thomas Didymus, uh, Nathaniel, James and John, and two unnamed others are out fishing. And Jesus, they've been fishing all night, haven't caught anything. Uh, Jesus looks out and says, you know, guys, if you put the net on the other side of the boat, you'll catch more than you ever imagined, which they did. And then they realize this guy talking from the the beach is uh, really Jesus. And so they just, uh, you know, Peter, uh, impetuous as he is, just dives off the boat and heads to shore. And uh, so they come in, and Jesus has fixed breakfast for them, and they have a discussion. So that's the seventh appearance. The eighth appearance, he is still up in Galilee, and he appears to 500 and teaches 500 uh, on um, one of the mountains there in Galilee. So you have uh, many, many others, the scripture says, that he appeared to. So it's not something that was private, something that was subjective. It was something that it was empirically verified uh, by those who saw uh, the resurrected Jesus. Ninth, we know he appeared to James individually. Uh, this was James, his um, uh, half brother. And then we're told in Luke twenty four forty four to forty nine, he appeared to the disciples again, and at other times, and taught about the kingdom of God throughout this period of time, as we're told also in Acts chapter one. And then his final appearance is at the ascension, when he gives his parting commands. Uh, and uh, departs the scene. So these are 11 different appearances that are described in the Scripture, and there were other appearances that took place. So there are eyewitnesses. Now, how many eyewitnesses do you need to confirm the reality of the event according to the Torah? Two. How many does Jesus have? 500 plus. So there is that evidence. Another line of evidence is from a negative side, and that's the guard at the tomb. Uh, here you have a Roman guard that's placed at the tomb. The penalty for falling asleep on the job is death. So the Romans had a r- very harsh disciplinary system uh, within their military. Now, these guards were set because uh, the uh, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin actually, had remembered that Jesus had taught that he would uh, uh, be raised from the dead. His disciples didn't remember that, but the Pharisees remembered that. So they went to the Romans and said, you know, unless to protect the body so nobody steals and claim that he rose from the dead, uh, put a guard on the tomb. So the Romans put a guard on the tomb. This could have been anywhere from 10 to 30 uh, soldiers, probably a smaller number, enough to run a four-man detail and have um, uh, one, one or two spell them as they had time to sleep. And they also sealed the tomb. Matthew twenty-seven sixty-six it states that the soldiers sealed the tomb. They would run a cord or a rope across the rock and seal it with wax and with the, the, uh, an imperial seal on either side so that no one could uh, break that seal upon threat uh, of death. And so they set that seal, and for... A couple of days, they sat there, watched. Nothing happened until that Sunday morning, when suddenly there was this earthquake, and the stone was rolled away. And the guards, then, when after the women left, the guards go into town and they say, they tell Caiaphas uh, that we were guarding it. This is what happened: an angel appeared, and Jesus rose from the dead. He left, and we decided to come back. There wasn't anything to guard anymore. So they they give a sort of a, 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 a backward testimony uh, supporting this, and the fact that they went back knowing that there was a death penalty for having fallen asleep indicates that they hadn't fallen asleep on the job. They were they were telling the truth. The third line of evidence is the change in the disciples. Here you have these disciples. They're they're running. They're hiding. They're fearful. When Jesus is arrested, uh, Peter is asked, aren't you one of those Galileans who is following Jesus? He said, no, 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 no. not me. Uh, I'm not one of them. And he denies knowing Jesus at all. And they are afraid that they're going to be the next ones to be arrested and to be crucified by, by, the, by the Romans. And yet what happens is once Jesus rises from the dead, they have the courage and they have the, the uh, conviction that he's alive. And this shapes the rest of their life. They're no longer fearful. They're no longer cowards. They, all but one of them, dies a martyr's death. John's the only one who lives to, and dies a, a ripe old age. The rest all die a martyr's death, and they're all willing to give their life for the for the statement that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that's phenomenal. Now, you might find one or two that are crazy enough or psychotic enough to uh, give their life for a lie, but you're not going to find 11, 12 if you count Paul, because he saw the resurrected Jesus as well. You're not going to find 12 men, or not counting John because he lived to the end, but he was willing to give his life uh, for that proposition. They were willing to die because they knew it was the absolute truth. It completely changed their whole lives because they knew Jesus had risen from the dead. And then last, the fourth major argument is that the birth of the church can only be explained if the tomb was empty. You have all these people coming to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they're there, and the the Sanhedrin's there, and the Pharisees are there, and they're coming, and they're hearing these men, Peter and James and John and others, telling them that Jesus was crucified, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead, if he didn't rise from the dead, it was very simple for the uh, for the uh, Sanhedrin to disprove that. Yeah, he's right over there. There's his body. We'll open the tomb and let you see his body. But they couldn't do that. They didn't have the body. They didn't have the evidence to support their their position because the tomb was empty. And and the disciples could take him there. They could take him right to the tomb and show him right where Jesus had been buried and that it was that it was empty. And so you have this explosive growth so that within a year you have fifteen, twenty thousand people in Jerusalem minimum, who are believing who believe that Jesus is the Messiah who has risen from the dead and has ascended into heaven and will return at some point in the future. So in Acts one three we read that Jesus presented himself in terms of his physical bodily resurrection alive after his suffering and death by many infallible proofs, many convincing proofs demonstrating that he had indeed conquered death. And that is at the heart of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is the most vicious, heartless, cruel religion of all of history because it's absolutely meaningless and it promises hope, an eternal life on the basis of the fact that Jesus conquered death. So either he didn't conquer death and Christianity is, is, is just a phenomenal fraud of, of the most horrendous proportions or Jesus did rise from the dead and we recognize that is our only hope. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things and reflect upon the fact that our faith is not built on legend, it's not built on uh, just uh, myths that have been made up, but that there is evidence, historical evidence, legal evidence, valid eyewitness accounts that are just as valid today as they were 2,000 years ago. And Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Acts, that you'd really challenge us with the impact that this had on the lives of those disciples, and that should have the same impact on us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.